Welcome to the AWP podcast series. This event originally occurred at the AWP conference in Chicago on March 2, 2012. The recording features Jamie Gordon and Rebecca Sklute. Now you will hear Donna Seaman from the American Library Association provide introductions. Thank you so much, Amber, and thank you all for being here today for this event. Thank you for joining us in this grand room with two top-of-the-chart writers, two writers who have galvanized critics and readers. That doesn't always go in sync. Novelist Jamie Gordon and science writer Rebecca Sklute. When Jamie Gordon won the National Book Award for her novel about life at a rundown West Virginia racetrack, journalists could not resist describing Lord of Misrule as a dark horse. And it's winning the big prize as a long shot. Even though Lord of Misrule was Jamie Gordon's fourth published novel. Champ of the City Solo is now considered an underground classic. She drove through without stopping, met with great acclaim, and Boogie Woman was named a Los Angeles Times best fiction pick. Readers who love fiction that illuminates the workings of the mind and delectable, rich language knew Jamie already as a winner. But there certainly was stealth to her ambushing triumph because her National Book Award-winning novel was published by a small press, McPherson and Company, and because Jamie defies mainstream expectations. Janet Maslin in the New York Times said Lord of Misrule is, and I quote, so assured, exotic, and uncategorizable, with such an unlikely provenance that it arrives as an incrovertible winner, a bona fide bolt from the blue. Andre Cudestru told the Wall Street Journal that Jamie has an incredible command of other voices and a sense of music and language that is unequaled. Roselle and Brown praised Jamie for her unique combination of bitterness and cheer and sexual knowingness, her gutsy authority. Jane Smiley wrote in the, her Washington Post review, Gordon has completely mastered the language of the racetrack and formed it into an evocative and idiosyncratic style. Born and raised in Baltimore, holding a doctorate from Brown University, Jamie teaches at Western Michigan University in Kalamazoo and in the Prague Summer Program for Writers. She has published poetry, plays, short stories, and essays, and received awards from the National Endowment for the Arts, the Provincetown Fine Arts Work Center, the Bunting Institute at Radcliffe, and an Academy Award from the American Institute of Arts and Letters. Please welcome Jamie Gordon. Thank you. It's wonderful to be here, and I thank the AWP for inviting me. It's wonderful to be doing this. I know that Donna eventually is going to look for a link between Rebecca Sklute and me, uh, and it won't be easy. So she gave me a hint yesterday that she's going to talk about fact and fiction and the missing link between them, research. Um, and I looked for uh, passages that I could read that would in some way reflect on that. Um, one of the reasons that I wrote this book was um, that I was interested in um, the old-time uh, African-American grooms um, who 
dominated uh, the labor force on the racetrack when I worked on the track around 1970, but who are almost gone now. By 2010, it was pretty clear that if I didn't write about them, there wouldn't be anybody left to write about them. Uh, so I'm going to talk, uh, I'm going to read mostly from the point of view of one of my four ma major characters, Medicine Ed. Um, Medicine Ed um, also will, in the pages that I'm going to read, reflect a little bit on just how scientific horse racing is or isn't. Um, I, I found... Uh, that the uh, research that I really needed to do for this book was not about science so much as about magic. And uh, Medicine Ed at least fancies that he can do magic. At the uh, start of the section that I'm going to read, he's just found out that the horse that he is um, holding for a blacksmith is called Mr. Bull Weevil. Um, since his principal intention in life right now is to find a way off the racetrack at the age of 72, and he knows that the bull weevil in the song is looking for a home. He thinks he's got a message that he should play this horse. There was no need for studying and dreaming. Often in the past, if Medicine Ed need to know about a horse, he could sit over a hand made of tail and mane hairs of the horse and tied with a red string and a hoof shaving and one green corner bit of his lucky money and push them around in hot candle sperm with a hoof pick under the light of the same white candle and dream until the answer come to him. But today was no need, no time. Soon as he heard the name of the horse Zeno was running, he knew what he must do. He must ride his lucky money on Mr. Bull Weevil, who had beckoned to him. And somehow he felt he had to touch his lucky money just then. There it is, never mind if it looks strange. He stumbled into the trailer. It was a 50 Zeno give him last year when they stole a nice little race in the Poconos with small town dock. He kept it pressed flat and neat between the lid and the waxed cardboard seal of a pickle jar of hedge beech leaf. The bill was evenly folded four times, so Ulysses S. Grant looked up thoughtful at you out of the lower left-hand corner. It was no use wishing it was a hundred or a couple of hundreds. He'd seen better years than them with Zeno and worse years. Thing of it was, he had lucky money. Like the bull weevil, he was looking for a home, and here was Mr. Bull Weevil in the fourth slot in the fourth race, beckoning to him. It was not a harming goofer that Medicine Ed knew the makings of. This ghost gray powder had never been meant to undo a horse. It was a root work of strong encouragement, of reaching deep into the lost harmony and milking up one drop of what was needed at the last. The gray rolled leaf which stuck to itself like cobweb came from a hedge beach in the old Salters family plot hard by New Life Baptist Church in Cambrai, South Carolina. The tree grew sideways out of the grave of his grandfather, Eduardo Salters, greatest jockey ever known in South Carolina, born in slavery, killed in a match race in 1888. It sprung out of the grave dirt, twisted in the shape of a man riding, with one straight limb shooting out of it like a whip, and its leaves must be collected at dark of moon from that limb only. This jar was dried heart leaf, 
This one was horse mushroom. This here was boneset. The fine gray-gold sugar with specks of black peat in it was sand and shatters from the infield of Major Longstreet Park in that little arc of elderberry bush where Cannonball was buried. And finally, he had needed blood of great speed, and what he got must was good enough. This was the blood of Platonic, who he had rubbed for Whirligig Farm and who gave him his own bleeding ulcer. Platonic had scratched his fetlock in the gate the day he won the seashell, and Ed had scrooched down before he let the horse have his bath and scraped every black flake into this little bottle here. And that, once he mixed it to his recipe, was Medicine Ed's horse goofer dust. But he had give up doctoring. Come to find out if you asked by powerful means for more than the animal had to give, you could not manage the results Some way, that was the last race of the horse, at least the last he ever saw. Every time he had cast the powder, the horse had won, but won for the last time. And which was why he had let the medicine go, all except his name, which nobody up here was wise to where it come from, and that was a good thing. But now the peculiar harmony of Mr. Bullweevil running in the fourth race had beckoned to him. He was 72 years old and tired. He never paid no mind to horses' names, disremembered most of them. This one sneaked up on him. He's looking for a home. He's looking for a home. Must be some kind of home out there looking for him. Medicine Ed. At the beginning of this novel, Medicine Ed wouldn't dream of working for the fly-by-night outfit of Tommy Hansel and his girlfriend, Maggie. But because you can never plan anything very far on the racetrack, he ends up working for them after all. And uh, although he and Maggie don't get along very well, they end up being in cahoots on a number of things. But in this particular section, he's trying to teach her a little bit of something about the racetrack, and here's where he makes a comment on how scientific horse racing might be. The frizzly-haired girl, the young fool's woman, was barking up his heels again with Pelter. She would walk a horse fast, that girl. She liked to hurry a horse, and him too. Sometimes she got so fresh, she tipped clean out from under the shed row, carried Pelter in the dirt road, and passed Medicine Ed and the horse he was walking on the right-hand side. Not if the young fool was watching, she wouldn't. He'd fuss with her if she tried that. Must be worried he'd stick out enough around here already, and for good reason. Anyhow, he won everything done the old way, according to etiquette. The cleanest hay, Timothy and Alfalfa. Best quality pine tar foot dressing. Zeno used to mix up his own out of used motor oil and turpentine. Best grain. 100% Castile shampoo, and the most experienced old-time groom fool enough to take his job. Naturally, Pelter go along with the girl just fine. Pelter was a game animal. He was always that, bit of a clown. Even before he was born, he had jumped around the usual etiquette of, of the business. For he was an unusual creature on the racetrack, even if you'd been around as long as Medicine Ed, namely a field-bred horse. Or that was the story. 
Some stud horse, maybe not the one officially certified on the papers, who knew, had sneaked around or over a fence somewhere and went with his mother. Some name like Home Cookin'. She wasn't much of a mare, and nobody wasn't expecting much out of her, and she got this witch-eyed, long-backed colt who turned into a legend, Pelter, and which, if he could talk and Medicine Ed wouldn't put it past him, why, why couldn't the two of them say about the type of folks they had fell in with now? The girl, the young fool's woman, she didn't know nothing and she couldn't do nothing. But she would work. He'd give her that much. Haul them buckets, sling them bales, just like a man, better than a man, if you look at what they got from men around here anymore. If she didn't know nothing to do, she'd find something to do and get all in your hair or climb up your heels like now. She'd make it up as she'd go along in the hole in her head where experience would have stacked up if she had any experience, that's where she must find him, her chucklehead ideas. You can't gallop an old horse every day, am I right, she say? Hmm. So he gets walked, correct? Medicine Ed just eyeball her. Okay, if it keeps Pelter sound to walk, isn't it reasonable that walking him fast is a little better than walking him slow? Don't you be putting off your eebie-jeebies on Pelter there. He ain't nervous. You nervous. He ain't in a hurry. You in a hurry. I didn't say he was nervous. I said maybe it'd be good for him to go a little faster. Good for you, you mean. Good for you, too, you old Halloween bones. Get your appetite up. And she grinned evilly. I had a stick leg since before you was born, young woman. This wasn't quite true, but somehow the vintage of an injury seemed like it ought to get some respect, like what he used to have for his granddaddy, who still limped from the war. Does I go around calling you four eyes? You probably call me worse than that behind my back. What I call you? Ignorant? Green? Use all of that. Finally, it was nothing else to do but show her, learn her a thing or two in self-defense. He taught her how to rub down the horse's leg and put on the cottons and bandage, smooth and not too tight, without poking it through with a pin and putting a hole in the animal. Then she thought she knows something. Then she want to bandage everything in sight. She go around bandaging young and old, lame and sound on her own say-so, and medicine Ed come around behind her unbandaging. What can it hurt, she say. Young woman, it is a price on everything. Every change makes some other change that you can't see. I know some trainers have never bandaged a horse, and they got horses outrun the word of God. When you run against them horses, you better have your tap dancing shoes on. Well, you're talking about somebody's $50,000 horse. We've got nothing but cripples. You think stakes horses is sound? He shook his head at the pure foolishness of her. Naturally, he was thinking of platonic and his feet that used to remind Medicine Ed of gluing together two broken china soup plates from little pieces. Him and the horseshoer worked on them so much. Them two front feet coming up to the seashell was one long bellyache, probably worth two weeks in the butcher shop, Sinai Hospital, all by themselves. Steak horses like all the rest, he added. So how do you know what to do? You follow custom, young woman. There is no I know, he know, like what you're talking about. 
Until you have put some years in this business, you watch the old grooms and do like they do. That doesn't sound very scientific to me, she say. I tell you a secret. Horse racing is not no science. Some of them tries to make it a science with the drugs and the chemicals and that. But matter of fact, it's more like a religion. It's a clouded thing. You can't see through it. It come down to a person's beliefs. One person believed this, and the other person believed that. It's like the National Baptist bandage and the Southern Baptists used liniment. You see what I'm trying to say? Nobody exactly know. His cheeks ached under his eyes. She made him talk too much, made him say peculiar things. He was sorry later that he give up. He slipped around the corner of the shed row and faded away from her behind wagons and buildings in a certain way he had learned to do long ago. Thank you. Thank you so much, Jamie. When I spoke with the great scientist, writer, and humanist Edward O. Wilson about writing his first novel, Ant Hill, at age 80, Dr. Wilson said, I think that creative writing is one of the most satisfying experiences available to a human being. I've done it in nonfiction primarily, and now in fiction, and I do believe that we have scarcely begun in creative writing to explore the possibilities of achieving what literature is meant to achieve. The biological world that humanity is part of has just not begun to be explored by our best writers. With notable exceptions, Jamie Gordon and award-winning narrative science writer Rebecca Skloot among them. Rebecca has brought just the sort of curiosity, zest, and literary passion to her work that Ed Wilson hopes to foster in other young writers. Her work has appeared in the New York Times Magazine, O, the Oprah Magazine, Discover, and many other venues. Rebecca has written about goldfish surgery, tissue ownership rights, race and medicine, food politics, and wild dogs in Manhattan. She has worked as a correspondent for PBS's Nova Science Now, and she and her father, Floyd Sklute, were co-editors of Best American Science Writing in 2011. And you can find video footage of Rebecca dancing with a cockatoo. <laughs> Snowball, yes. <laughs> and then there's Rebecca's gripping first book, The Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks. One of those resounding books that seems to have been hovering in some sort of limbo waiting for precisely the right writer to come along. Rebecca worked for more than 10 years on this complex and in many ways harrowing tragedy about a strangely embodied, hijacked, and invaluable form of immortality. The book seems to grow and multiply with the same determined energies as the unstoppable cells that were taken from cancer-ravaged Henrietta Lacks, then a young, life-loving wife and mother. The Immorta Gila cells that have fueled so much medical research live on in Rebecca's book. And like its cellular subject, this bestseller has enlightened readers all around the world, while Rebecca has traveled far and wide to speak to a dazzling array of audiences and became a television star, appearing on everything from CBS Sunday Morning to the Colbert Report. The Washington Post named Rebecca as one of five surprising leaders of 2010. 
reviewed everywhere, The Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks was named Best Book of the Year by more than 60 newspapers, magazines, and other media, including my own book list. An edition for young readers was published last fall, and The Immortal Life is being made into an HBO movie produced by Oprah Winfrey and Alan Ball. With a degree in biological sciences and an MFA in creative writing, Rebecca has taught creative writing and science journalism at the University of Memphis, the University of Pittsburgh, and New York universities. Please welcome Rebecca Skloot. Thank you. Thank you. Very glad to be here. Thank you, AWP, for this. And thank you, Donna, for that. That was great. And I did not know you could find footage of me on YouTube dancing with a cockatoo. Um, <laughs> that was from a little... No, it's good to know. <laughs> I wrote this story about this cockatoo that dances, and it turned out to be this big sort of scientific breakthrough because... People, or scientists forever have thought that humans were the only species that danced, and then this bird appeared that actually dances, and they clocked his dancing, and I went and was writing a story about him, and the scientist was there with me while I was sort of watching the parrot, and he asked me to dance with him as part of a new sort of leg of the study to see if the parrot cared who he danced with. And... <laughs> And in the background, they were videotaping this as part of the, re the part of the research. And I, in the background of this video, you can hear him saying, "Someday this is going to go on YouTube," <laughs> and I didn't know it had. <laughs> so that's very funny. Um, anyways, so I'm going to do a sort of combination of reading and talking to give you an overview of the book and a sample of the different kinds of writing in it. Um, and just from what Jamie was saying in the intro, I too was curious to see how Donna was going to pull these two um, very disparate kind of writings together. And something you said in your intro just sort of made it all make sense to me, which was you said you were sort of, you know, if you didn't write about these, these people in this culture, they were going to vanish. And I think that's something that we obviously have in common, that there was, as I was working on this book, I had this sense of scrambling to gather a history that was vanishing as I was doing the work. The generation of scientists and other people I was writing about were in their 80s and 90s, a lot of them. And, you know, I think we can probably talk about that, the experience of trying to capture recent history as it's going away and the sort of feelings and burden that can come along with that. So I'm going to just start off reading right at the beginning of the book. And for those of you who don't know what HeLa cells are, um, the name is spelled H-E-L-A, which is an abbreviation for Henrietta's name. It's H-E for Henrietta and L-A for Lax. So I'm going to start at the beginning. And if it sounds like I'm skipping around at all, it's because I am. This is sort of condensed scenes. On January 29, 1951, David Lax sat behind the wheel of his old Buick watching the rainfall. He was parked under a towering oak tree outside Johns Hopkins Hospital with three of his children, two still in diapers, waiting for their mother, Henrietta. A few minutes earlier, she jumped out of the car, pulled her jacket over her head, and scurried into the hospital, past the colored bathroom, the only one she was allowed to use. In the next building, under an elegant domed copper roof, a ten-and-a-half-foot marble statue of Jesus stood, arms spread wide, holding court, over what was once the main entrance of Hopkins. No one in Henrietta's family ever saw a Hopkins doctor without visiting the Jesus statue, laying flowers at his feet, saying a prayer, and rubbing his big toe for good luck. But that day, Henrietta didn't stop. She went straight to the waiting room of the gynecology clinic, 
a wide open space, empty, but for rows of long straight back benches that look like church pews. I got a knot on my womb, she told the receptionist. The doctor needs to have a look. The day before, Henrietta went to the bathroom and found blood spotting her underwear. She filled her bathtub, lowered herself into the warm water, and spread her legs. With the door closed to her children, husband, and cousins, Henrietta slid a finger inside herself and rubbed it across her cervix until she found what she somehow knew she'd find, a hard lump deep inside as though someone had lodged a marble just to the left of the opening to her womb. Henrietta climbed out of the bathtub, dried herself off and dressed. Then she told her husband, you better take me to the doctor. I'm bleeding and it ain't my time. Hopkins was one of the top hospitals in the country. It was built in 1889 as a charity hospital for the sick and poor, and it covered more than a dozen acres where a cemetery and insane asylum once sat in East Baltimore. The public wards at Hopkins were filled with patients, most of them black and unable to pay their medical bills. David drove Henrietta nearly 20 miles to get there, not because they preferred it, but because it was the only major hospital for miles that treated black patients. This was the era of Jim Crow. When black people showed up at white-only hospitals, the staff was likely to send them away, even if it meant they might die in the parking lot. Even Hopkins, which did treat black patients, segregated them in colored wards and had colored-only fountains. So when the nurse called Henrietta from the waiting room, she led her through a single door to a colored-only exam room, one in a long row of rooms divided by clear glass walls that let nurses see from one to the next. Henrietta undressed, wrapped herself in a starched white hospital gown, and laid down on a wooden exam table waiting for Howard Jones, the gynecologist on duty. Jones was thin and graying, his deep voice softened by a faint southern accent. He listened as Henrietta told him about the pain, the blood. She laid back on the table, feet pressed in stirrups as she stared at the ceiling, and sure enough, Jones found a lump exactly where she'd said he would. He described it as an eroded hard mass, about the size of a nickel. He'd seen easily a thousand cervical cancer lesions, but never anything like this, shiny and purple. Like grape jello, he wrote later, and so delicate it bled at the slightest touch. Jones cut a small sample and sent it to the pathology lab down the hall for diagnosis, then told Henrietta to go home. Soon after, he dictated notes about her. Her history is interesting in that she had a term delivery here at this hospital September 19, 1950, he said. No note is made in the history at that time or at the six weeks return visit that there's any abnormality of the cervix. Yet here she was, just three months later, with a full-fledged tumor. Either her doctors had missed it during her last exams, which seemed impossible, or it had grown at a terrifying rate. So Henrietta went home, and a few days later she got a call from Howard Jones telling her that the biopsy came back as cervical cancer. She was 30 years old, she had five kids, and he called her back in for what was the standard treatment of the day, which was radium therapy, where they would take tubes of radium, which is radioactive material, and sew those to the surface of the cervix and leave them there for a few days to essentially burn off the cancer. And he did, they did this under anesthesia. So she came in, and they put her under, and without telling her, before applying the radium to her cervix, her doctor just cut a little piece of her tumor and put that in a dish. 
he sent that down the hall to George Guy, who was the head of tissue culture research at Hopkins. And George Guy, along with researchers all around the world, had been trying to grow human cells outside the body for decades, and it had never worked. They could keep them alive for a few days, maybe a week, but they all died pretty quickly. And no one knows exactly why to this day, but Henrietta's cells just never died. Um, So within less than a day of her leaving the hospital, her cells were doubling their numbers every 24 hours. So they went from one dish to two to four to eight to 16 and so on, and sort of pretty quickly took over the lab. And George Guy started contacting scientists saying, I think I have the first immortal human cell line, which is what they're called, which means they will basically just grow forever as long as you feed them and keep them warm. And the reaction that scientists had was, great, can we have some? Because scientists had been wanting these cells to do research on any number of things. We didn't know what cells really were, like how they operated. We didn't know what DNA was. They didn't know the difference between a cancer cell and a normal cell. I mean, they needed live cells they could look at under the microscope. So George Guy just started sending them to anyone who wanted them. Um, And he would do this by either he or his wife or his assistant would go to the airport with a tube of cells and find a flight attendant or a pilot and say, would you put this in your pocket and fly this to you know, whatever city they wanted the cells to go to? And they would do this, which is amazing in today's era of flight, <laughs> airport security. I, I think about this every time I go through an airport security line. <laughs> um, and then on the other end, the scientists would be waiting for the cells, and they would get, grab the vials, run back to the lab and grow them, give them to their friends, who'd give them to their friends. And pretty soon, HeLa cells spread all over the world this way. And this is not the most efficient method for transporting cells or growing them, so pretty soon a factory was set up at the Tuskegee Institute where they started mass-producing her cells assembly line style to the tune of about 6 trillion cells a week and sending those out to laboratories around the world. So just within a few months of her death, the number of cells that had grown from that one tiny sample was sort of inconceivable. And to this day, one scientist estimated that if you could have saved them all and gathered them onto a scale, that by now they'd weigh more than 50 million metric tons, which is more than 150 Empire State Buildings. And cells weigh nothing. They're just these little microscopic things. So it's sort of impossible to imagine how many cells we're talking about. And Henrietta had no idea. So the science that came from these cells was immediately just revolutionary. It changed medicine completely. The sort of greatest hits are that her cells were used to help develop the polio vaccine. They went up in the first space missions to see what would happen to human cells in zero gravity. Her cells were the first ever cloned. Her genes were the first ever mapped. They were used to create our most important cancer medications like vincristine and tamoxifen. And I bet there are many people in this room who have either taken one of those drugs or know somebody who has. Um, The HPV vaccine can be traced back to her cells. And the list just goes on and on. And one of the things that made them so valuable for science was that they grew with this incredible intensity. And they did the same thing in her body that they did in the lab. So the thing that made them so valuable for science made them very deadly for her. So within just a few months of being diagnosed, right after her 31st birthday, Henrietta died, and that little tumor had spread to almost every organ in her body. And when she died, no one told her husband or her kids that these cells were out there all around the world, and her family just sort of went on with their lives. And they were very difficult lives. They lived in poverty in East Baltimore. And scientists continued using the cells for the next several decades, and they also started 
growing cells from lots of other people. So they thought, well, since they used the techniques they'd used to grow HeLa and started taking cells from anyone, and those cells would grow. So they created this library of other tissues um, to use for different kinds of research. And then in the late 70s, this one young researcher started doing some genetic mapping on these cells. So this was the early days of, ge of genetics. And he was looking at a prostate cancer cell line, and he noticed that it had two X chromosomes in it. And for those of you who remember your basic biology, you women have two Xs and men have an X and a Y. And women don't have prostates, so you can't have a prostate cancer cell line with two X chromosomes. So he thought, well, that's weird. And he started looking for other genetic markers in these cells, and he found that they had this gene for a very rare enzyme really only found in African Americans. And even among African Americans, it was very rare. She was like, that's odd. This white guy's prostate seems to be from a black woman. <laughs> and <laughs> so then he started testing all these other tissues that were out there, and sure enough, they all seemed to be from a black woman. And what had happened was scientists didn't know it at the time, but when you grow cells in culture, they can actually travel on dust particles in the air. If you touch a dish and don't wash your hands and touch another dish, you can transfer the cells from one place to another. And without it, so without anyone knowing, HeLa cells had just taken over everything. Um, and HeLa cells are so powerful that if one of them drops in a dish, they'll just kill off the other cells, basically. And you can't tell from looking with a naked eye because you can't see the cells. So this scientist announced this at a conference, saying, you know, all these cells you guys have been working with for the past, you know, few decades, they're all HeLa cells, which caused an enormous controversy because it would mean millions of wasted research dollars, and a lot of people said, you know, well, that would be sloppy technique, and that would have never happened in my lab. So to settle this debate, this researcher decided to track down Henrietta's kids. And the way that he figured it was he could treat this like a crime scene. If you got DNA from her kids, you could test the other, all these other cells. And if they were from Henrietta, the DNA would match her kids. And so he called Henrietta's husband one day. This is the early 70s. And Henrietta's husband had a third grade education. He didn't know what a cell was. The way he understood this call was, we've got your wife. She's alive in a laboratory. We've been doing research on her for the last 25 years, and now we have to test your children to see if they had the cancer that killed her, none of which was what the scientist said at all. He said, we need to look at your HLA markers and compare those to the HeLa cells, and he thought they had her in a cell, like a prison cell. That was the only kind of cell he'd ever heard of. So her family got sucked into this world of research that they didn't understand, and the scientists didn't realize the family didn't understand. And this went on for a very long time, and Henrietta's daughter... Deborah was right around the age of 30 when this happened. And so for her, this sort of confirmed her worst fears because she'd lived in fear of her 30th birthday her whole life because she knew Henrietta had died. She didn't know why. And she knew it happened at 30. And so she just figured the same thing would happen to her. So having these scientists show up at that point to test her, everyone just figured they were all dying. Um, so the scientists would come to the house and take these samples and leave. And the family would wait for their results, which would never come. And pretty soon they figured out that, you know, she wasn't alive. You couldn't go visit her in the lab the way they could have when she was alive. But what it meant to have part of her alive was really unclear to them. And particularly Deborah, who was a very deeply spiritual woman, she believed her mother's soul was alive in these cells. So the scientists would come to the house and say things like, and Deborah would ask them things like, you know, can my mother rest in peace if you're shooting these cells up to the moon and injecting them with all these chemicals? And does this somehow cause her pain in the afterlife when you infect her with these diseases? And the scientists had no idea how to respond to her. 
At one point, one of them gave her a medical school genetics textbook and said, here, read this. This will tell you what you need to know about your mother. And Henrietta's kids were all deaf and hard of hearing, and no one realized this until they were adults. They went through their entire education without being able to hear the teacher. So they couldn't really read or write. They also never really learned to question people in positions of authority, especially white people. So they just went along with this research for years. Um, pretty soon, Henrietta's sons found out that in addition to all this research being done, these cells were being bought and sold. So they launched what's now a multi-billion dollar industry of you know, buying and selling genes, or buying and selling cells and patenting genes. And that all can be traced back to HeLa cells, which were the first human biological materials ever commercialized. And Henry and his family to this day lives they're quite poor, and they would often say, so if our mother's cells are so important to medicine, why can't we go to the doctor? And if people are buying and selling these things, essentially where's our cut? And no one really was able to answer that for them. So then I came along a couple decades later, a 20-some-odd-year-old MFA student, <laughs> um, wanting to write this story that I had been sort of obsessed with since I was 16 when I first learned about the cells. And I called them up and said, hi, I want to write a book about your mother. And they said, no, you're not. <laughs> and I didn't understand where I fit into their story. I didn't know her children had been used in research. Not long before I contacted them, their medical records had been released to the press without their permission and published. I mean, the number of things that this family had gone through, I know. <laughs> the number of things this family had gone through to that point was really astonishing. And I didn't know any of it. And so... It took about 10 years to do the book, and a lot of, especially the first about year and a half after I contacted the family, was sort of trying to win their trust and figure out why they were so afraid to talk to me and what had happened to them. And in the end, I do end up um, winning the trust, particularly of Deborah. And one of the things that I said to her as I was you know, talking to her and trying to understand their story was, you know, I'm not trying to hide anything from you. If you want to come with me when I do my research, you can. Because it was clear to me from our conversations that the family still didn't really understand what these cells were, and they wanted to know what had happened with them. And I don't think I ever really thought Deborah was going to take me up on that. <laughs> but she did. Um, and so the book sort of becomes this almost like a travel story with Deborah and I traveling around and doing things like going and seeing the cells and sort of her trying to come to terms with all of this and move on. So I'm going to read one more short scene. And this is um, one of the first things she and I did together was go into a lab at Hopkins so she could see her mother's cells for the first time. And the other person who's there with us is Zakaria, who's um, Deborah's youngest brother. Henrietta was pregnant with him when she found the tumor, so she, she died while he was, when he was a newborn. And we went into this lab. It was a scientist who had read a short article that I'd written in a magazine just about the family and their experience with the cells. And he had the reaction most scientists have when they hear the story, which is essentially, oh, my God, I had no idea. You know, he said, I've been using these cells in my lab my entire career. I did my dissertation on these cells, and I had no idea they didn't give permission. Um, so he wanted to reach out to the family and do something. Christoph walked toward us through the lobby of his building, smiling, hand outstretched. He was in his mid-30s, with perfectly worn denim jeans, a blue plaid shirt, and shaggy light brown hair. He shook my hand in Deborah's, then reached for Zakaria's, but Zakaria didn't move. Okay, Christoph said, looking at Deborah. It must be pretty hard for you to come into a lab at Hopkins after what you've been through. I'm really glad to see you here. Christoph threw open the door to his lab with a sweeping ta-da motion and waved, waved us inside. 
This is where we keep all the cells, he yelled over a deafening mechanical hum that made Debra's and Zakaria's hearing aids squeal. Zakaria's hand shot up and tore his from his ear. Deborah adjusted the volume on hers, then walked past Kristoff into a room filled wall to wall with white freezers, stacked one on top of the other, rumbling like a sea of washing machines in an industrial laundromat. She shot me a wide-eyed, terrified look. Kristoff pulled the handle of a white floor-to-ceiling freezer and it opened with a hiss, releasing a cloud of steam into the room. Deborah screamed and jumped behind Zakaria, who stood expressionless, hands in his pockets. Don't worry, Kristoff yelled. It's not dangerous, it's just cold. They're not minus 20 like your freezers at home. They're minus 80. That's why when I open them, smoke comes out. He motioned for Deborah to come closer. It's all full of her cells, he said. Deborah loosened her grip on Zakaria and inched forward until the icy breeze hit her face and she stood staring at thousands of inch-tall plastic vials filled with red liquid. Oh, God, she gasped. I can't believe all that's my mother. Kristoff reached into the freezer, took out a vial, and pointed to the letters H-E-L-A written on its side. There are millions and millions of her cells in there, he said. Maybe billions. You can keep them here forever. Fifty years, a hundred years, even more. Then you just thaw them out and they grow. He rocked the vial of HeLa cells back and forth in his hand as he started talking about how careful you have to be when you handle them. We have an extra room just for the cells, he said. That's important, because you don't want HeLa cells to contaminate other cultures in a lab. He explained how the HeLa contamination problem happened, then said, her cells caused millions of dollars in damage. Seems like a bit of poetic justice, doesn't it? Oh, my mother was just getting back at scientists for keeping all them secrets from the family, Deborah said. You don't mess with Henrietta. She'll sick HeLa on your ass. Kristoff reached into the freezer behind him, grabbed another vial of HeLa cells, and held it out to Deborah, his eyes soft. She stood stunned for a moment, staring into his outstretched hand, then grabbed the vial and began rubbing it fast between her palms, like she was warming herself in winter. She's cold, Deborah said, cupping her hands and blowing onto the vial. Kristoff motioned for us to follow him to the incubator where he warmed the cells, but Deborah didn't move. As Zakaria and Kristoff walked away, she raised the vial and touched it to her lips. You're famous, she whispered. Just nobody knows it. I'm going to stop there. Thank you. Thank you so much, Rebecca. That's so moving, even though I've probably read it three times. <laughs> it still gets me every time. So, um... Authenticity and truth are important in both fiction and nonfiction, art and science. So, Jamie, I'm wondering how you ensure that you get things right in fiction, um, that things are authentic, uh, that the authenticity in your story is grounded in something. Um, there wasn't a, a great problem with getting the milieu right in Lord of Misrule because I'd worked on the track from 1967 to 1970 in um, that stage of um, one's life, um, of a young writer's life, where you take all kinds of horrible jobs just for um, knowing that you'll use them one way or another. Uh, but the working on the racetrack was different. First of all, 
it was a bad boyfriend episode. <laughs> um, second of all, I hadn't even been to graduate school yet, so um, I was. Although I knew that I wanted to be a writer, I um, I didn't have any paths very clearly laid out for me. So it was a, a total life. I mean, when you work on the racetrack, you keep different hours from anybody else. It's a completely different world. Um, all you know of the of the the news. It was the middle of the Vietnam War, um, which isn't mentioned once in the book. Uh, all you know of the news is a couple lines that are sneaked into the racing form uh, between um, one race and another. So, um, I, so that was a three-year immersion experience. And when I went to graduate school, it was very consciously in escaping from the racetrack to some extent. So just getting the milieu right, that was not hard. Um, getting uh, the voice right took more uh, conscious research. As I had to go back and talk again to um, a couple of survivors, um, you know, I still have uh, the books dedicated to Bubbles Riley, um, somebody from, from um, Pimlico, but also West Virginia tracks in his day, who would just talk to me endlessly, and I was listening not so much to the content as the way that he shaped his sentences, so, and that was very important to getting the book right. You had worked on a short story in the 90s. It was published in a Best American Fiction. Uh, right. Even right. had a couple of characters. That was, a, that was very conscious. Uh, you know, to, uh, at that time, it had already been 25 years since I'd been on the track. I just wanted to see if I could get it back, uh, get the voices, the raffish atmosphere. You know, the tracks that I worked on were very crummy racetracks, um, which I loved about them. So, but, but I just wasn't sure I could find that... Um, that particular aura, but it did come right back, uh, at least for 30 pages. Um, when it had to be 300 pages, then I needed some more. But I knew from the, I knew from how well that story did that I could get a novel out of it. Um, if it landed in Best American Short Stories, it might have been because Jane Smiley was editing it that year. <laughs> a horse lover. <laughs> and, uh, almost any racetrack story would do. <laughs> you had to have at least one in there, right? So, so Rebecca, um, you're the flip side. You have you know a plethora of facts, sort of enormous amount of information to cover. And um, you know, much science writing covers it you know, more like textbooks or popularized teaching, whereas you turned yours into a real narrative. So I'm wondering if you sort of looked to fictional techniques and also when you decided that you had to be part of the story. <laughs> yes, no, I definitely looked to fictional techniques. I mean, my goal with the book was to write, I mean, my definition of creative nonfiction is it reads like fiction, it reads like a story, but is completely verifiably true, every fact every statement, you know, whether it's the weather or the dialogue or whatever is verifiable with multiple sources and, um, but reads like fiction. And so I didn't, I read only fiction as models. Mm -hmm. I didn't want to read nonfiction because I didn't want it to, I didn't want my book to seem like nonfiction. Um, so, and I knew that going in, I mean, the book has essentially three separate narratives that each take place in a very different time period and they're just braided together. And I knew early on that I wanted, that I needed to tell all the stories at the because when you learn the story of these cells and Henrietta and the world that she came from and what happened with the science, 
When you learn those at the same time that you're learning the story of her family and the impact those cells had on them, even though it was several decades later, the cells take on a very different weight. And so does the family story when you learn about the amazing things the cells did and how you personally benefited from all of it. So I wanted the book to go back and forth between these, two, these narratives. My goal was to, I sort of imagined readers reading along and they'd read the science parts and go like, yay, science, science is awesome. And then they read the family part and go, oh, boo, science, science is bad. <laughs> yeah. Because it's a story where you just can't, there's no clear cut good guy, bad guy, because all of it, you know, it, it's a much more complicated story than that. And, and I felt that telling all the stories at the same time was necessary, which is, of course, very hard to do. Um, and like a crazy person, I actually tried to write it that way. I just thought, well, I'll just know when to switch back and forth between the narratives, which is a good way to lose your mind, like trying to write multiple stories at once. Um, and at a certain point, I realized I had to unbraid it and write each of the stories separately and then weave them and part of what I did during that process was I just I went to a local bookstore. This was in West Virginia. Actually, a friend of mine had a house there that I would go hide in to write. And there was this little tiny bookstore there. And I went in and I just explained to her what I wanted to do. And I said, find me any book you can find that has multiple characters, multiple time periods, and a braided narrative. <laughs> And she did, and you know, so she would just feed me these novels, and I would read them and just steal little things here and there for structure ideas. Um, and the first one that was just this big kind of light bulb for me was Fried Green Tomatoes at the Whistle Stop Cafe. <laughs> um, because it tells, in some ways, a similar story, sort of a, you know, a, a, a present-day woman talking to another woman, figuring out an older story, and then you flash back to the older story. And, and then in the book, they have these news clippings from that were interspersed with those stories that were all just sort of facts about what was going on in that time period and I sort of imagined oh the science narrative could be like the news clippings and then and then I and I mean another one was love medicine um, and that was by Louise Erdrich and it, you know she has all these different characters and um, so I, I and voices so I, I focused a lot on that and then actually turned to movies at a certain point because it I started realizing that movies, like most of them, are structured that way. We just don't really notice. Um, and I was watching Hurricane, about Hurricane Carter, the boxer. It was my boyfriend. We were just sitting there watching the movie, and he's an actor and a director. And I was just being extremely obnoxious. Like, the movie came on, and about three scenes into it, I was like, this is my book. Oh, my God, this is the same structure as my book. And he was eventually was like, just stop. Right. <laughs> like, watch the movie, and then, you know, storyboard it. He's like, go back tomorrow and storyboard the movie. Figure it out, but just, like, shut up right now. And so I did that, and I spent, like, three days just pushing play and pause and play and pause and play and pause, and I storyboarded the entire movie on index cards. And it had three narratives, so I did different colored index cards for each narrative, which I had already done with my own book. And then I laid it out on this giant <laughs> this bed and literally just put my book on top of it to see what would happen. And I took each of my color-coded cards and just like, was like pink, pink, green, green, pink, pink. And that, the thing that I got most from that was realizing that movies jump around in time so fast and that if you're gonna have a book that jumps around like that, you have to do it really quickly or you, you start to lose one of the other narratives. And, um, so it was actually, I think the pacing was something I got more from movies than anything else. Um, so yes, I did mm -hmm. think about that. <laughs> I'm not sure that entirely answers the question, but yeah, that was sort of how I got my idea. Very interesting. Um, Jamie, you're just, I think you've described yourself as being besotted in language and that you initially started writing fiction in that sort of that enchantment of rhetoric and words. And I wonder how you sort of moved from um, that stage in your writing to this more 
um, realistic, uh, sort of more earthy. You don't think this book is besotted with language? Oh, I do think it is. I do think it is. But, it, but the, the story is different than Shampoo. The reason I was such a sucker for that racetrack life, apart from the fact that the guy was really um, charming in his way, <clears throat> in a menacing sort of way, um, was that... The, like Maggie in the book, I was lured away from a small-town newspaper writing job. I was sitting at the edge of the shed row writing headlines for food copy, and he was having a conversation with a blacksmith, and I didn't understand a single word they were saying. <laughs> I mean, it was a completely new language to me. Very spicy, I mean, really interesting, and I love to be around animals, large animals, small animals. I find animals very interesting. But more than anything, I just wanted to penetrate that language. And, um, and in this book, um, as some critics have complained and others have said with sort of grudging um, admiration, um, there's no mercy for the reader. You have to get with it. Uh, I just plunge right into that racetrack um, argot and... Uh, in a chapter or so, people, if they stay with it that long, they get used to it. And then they are really in a different world. But, um, but that, was the, that was the whole lore. And of course, um, each of the characters represents a different um, uh, ethnic um, component of the racetrack. So they all um, talk somewhat differently. But, um, but it's all racetrack, one way or another. And uh, it was very important to me also, to get that down, because that too is, uh, I mean, we might not have racetracks, <laughs> certainly not cheap racetracks, the way that um, uh, we did in, for better or worse, in the 50s, 60s, 70s, so in a few more years. Oh, sorry. <clears throat> so, um, several things, you know, come up in common here, preserving lost worlds or imperiled worlds, and also this responsibility to people that appear to be very different than yourselves. I mean, you both sort of ventured into other cultures and other worlds. And I wonder if you, Rebecca, um, could talk a little bit about how you navigated that and the foundation, this foundation that kind of came out of that feeling of um, indebtedness, I would guess. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, for me, when I first contacted the family and, you know, I had this phone call to Deborah where I said I wanted to write this book and it was clear that she wanted to talk to me. She was really curious. She wanted to know more about her mother and thought that doing a book would both get her mother's story out there, which she felt very strongly about, but also would teach her about her own mother. But then she kept saying things, you know, but I don't know who to trust and maybe you're going to try to steal my cells. And I just had no idea where that was coming from. And I really had to just completely dive into their world and they weren't coming with me. Um, so what the first thing that I did was I went and found Henrietta's living, her sort of, her generation of her siblings, her cousins, and they were all living in this little tiny town in southern Virginia and they, some of them didn't have indoor plumbing or electricity, some of them had just gotten it recently. It was, they lived on an old plantation, a lot of them still in these old slave shacks. You know, I grew up in Portland, Oregon. We're not famous for our diversity uh, over there. <laughs> and this was a world that I had never encountered, both in terms of the level of poverty and, you know, and just a, a southern black culture. Just, you know, and this little white girl shows up driving along in my you know, little beat-up car, and I showed up with this 
And I just, my plan was to drive down there and just find mailboxes that said Lax and start knocking on doors and saying, did you know Henry Lax? And I got there and everybody's name was Lax. <laughs> I didn't know this, but it was because the plantation owner had been a Lax. And when he, you know, when the slaves were freed, they all took his name and they just kept it. And so there, and there were white Laxes and black Laxes living on opposite sides of the street. There was all this racial tension. There was still a very active KKK community. And I didn't, that was so beyond anything I'd ever experienced. And, you know, I think, obviously, I, I mean, I could talk for days about the ways that this book, the experience of researching and writing this book changed me. But in terms of experiencing another, another culture, I mean, I've, you know, I'm not a person who would have, you know, I did not describe myself as a privileged person. I, you know, I grew up not that much money. I had to work three jobs to go to school, went into a lot of debt. I never thought of that as being a privilege until I went and started spending time with the Lax family and realized that that was a privilege. And like going into debt and going to school thinking someday you're going to be able to pay that off was a privilege. Having a basic grade school education was a privilege. And the race, you know, I learned so much about race in this country through my experiences with the Lax family. And they weren't going to let me in until I got it, you know. And they got, Deborah would get slack from people occasionally saying, like, this, you know, why are you talking to a white writer? This is a black story. And... And she was like, you know, first her answer was, well, no black writer has ever asked. Um, you know, but beyond that, I mean, she really wanted it. She felt like it was a much bigger story than that. She's like, it's about race, it's about class, it's about everybody. And she didn't want it to be reduced to just a story about racism. But she needed to know that I understood that part of the story. And, you know, so eventually they would call me, like, the honorary black lax. And, you know, I'd go and hang out with them. And, we, you know, they'd be like, they tease me relentlessly about my whiteness. And, you know, it's like, oh, she's in the sun. We're just going to start turning calories. We're going to move her. And, like, um, you know, but to get there, one, we, Deborah and I would have these arguments sometimes about race. So she would say, often to other people who would criticize her for talking to me, that she didn't think a black writer could have written the book. And I would say, that is ridiculous. Like, we are so beyond that. Like, this is, it's just, we thought about it. And she just, she thought, she saw that as me not understanding race in this mm -hmm. country. And at a certain point, I realized that she was, I had to sort of concede that she was right in one way. Like, it wasn't obviously that a black writer couldn't have written the book. That anyone could have. But it would have been a different book because the people I was talking to would not have talked to a black writer in the same way that they talked to me. And I had this moment of realizing this. I was talking to a, a white scientist an old, you know, who's quite old, and he was a generation of scientists who grew up during segregation. He did not talk to black people. And he would have been very defensive. He wouldn't have taken me as an equal. And I had this moment in an interview of talking to him and realizing it by listening to the way he was talking about the family. And I had to go to Deborah and say, like, I get it. You know, part of this privilege that I didn't realize I had was that I'm white. And that really does still exist in this country. And, you know, so all of that then, of course, went into the, the book and my understanding of the family and wanting to kind of capture their culture and, you know, write about it in a way that showed other people who, you know, perfectly open-minded white people, you know, so give them a different, a, a different experience of, than they kind of imagine. And um, so in terms of the foundation, the one thing very early on that I realized was that I didn't want to be another person who sort of came along and potentially benefited from the family without doing something in return. So I started this foundation. Um, and so I get some of the proceeds of the book going there. We've, and it's been mostly focused on education. We've been able to give out, I think it's like 25 different um, generations, different laxes who are grandkids, great-grandkids, great-great-grandkids are going to school, um, college, some of them private high school, um, now paid for by the foundation. We've been able to help with some medical expenses. Um, but that, that I wanted to do going in. The rest of that, those big lessons that happened 
like I already knew that I wanted to do the foundation before that, but that just sort of solidified that desire. Oh, very interesting. Um, Jamie, you mentioned animals, which I wanted to ask you about. You both are animal lovers. And um, I was reading, uh, John McPhee recently had a uh, The Writing Life essay in The New Yorker, and he was looking back on his writing life and trying to figure out why he wrote about what he wrote about. And he made a list of topics and realized that almost all of them were things that he's been interested in since before he went to college. And I wondered if in some ways that was the case for you and if um, loving animals was part of that at all. Um, well, I've always had a dog. Um, <laughs> and they're, they were all very different personalities. I, you know, I had a dog from when I um, was about five years old. Um, it was a, I'd wandered maybe a half a block from home. That was the farthest I'd ever gone. And a neighbor um, who I didn't know said, get your dog away from my garbage can. Um, and I looked down and there was a little old dog there. I called the dog in some way and that became my dog. Um, um, I mean, my mother said, no, you can't keep her unless, uh, we'll, we'll wait till tomorrow morning and if she's still there, we'll keep her. And she was there. So I had that dog for a long time. It's just, um, you know, the, uh, having um, a lot of, um, having complex relationships with animals has always been there in my life. Um, and I've had birds. I've had cats, dogs, horses, mice, um, and, uh, and snakes. You know, I found them all really interesting. Uh, curiously, I was never one of those teenage girls who had a thing for horses, uh -huh. particularly, because I just didn't like the whole jod for riding boots, riding helmet, crop sort of thing. But, um, but the potential was there. And uh, I had I spent a lot of time um, when I lived in California with birds, and I thought that dogs, that horses and birds were very similar. They uh, have similar flight fight reactions. They uh, they're much funnier than uh, they're normally given credit for. They definitely have a sense of humor. Um, they 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 excite, um, agitate, get calm again. Um, give their trust in similar ways. So it was just strange to go from these little smallest things that hardly anybody gives credit for being very interesting pets to uh, horses. And, um, you know, I haven't really had a horse in my life again since 1970, but, um, but, but I've you know, I hope that I meet a horse next week that <laughs> could happen. And I would, I'd be very interested. I'm, I'm glad you brought up that I heard McPhee talk about that years ago when I was in undergrad. He talked about the fact that he had mapped basically everything he'd written and he could trace it back to something he was interested in and actually sort of obsessed with before college. I think at the time he had said it was like before he was 19. And I think it's absolutely true. I mean, it's definitely true of me. If you look back at everything I've written, um, it is either connected to bioethics um, in some ways or animals um, and just this place where science and daily life meet. And I talk about this at schools a lot um, with students that, you know, I think when students are like trying to find things to write about or trying to find their place, I always say, like, go, what, what are you obsessed with? What have you always been obsessed with? You know, I learned about halo cells when I was 16 and I wasn't planning to be a writer. I was going to be a veterinarian. And 
you know, but it just stuck with me. And, you know, I think, you know, my father got sick when I was 16, and he was a, in a research study as a, as a guinea pig, basically, and I spent a lot of time in a hospital watching my dad be used in research, which obviously connects to this. And so I think everything I've ever done can connect back to something pretty much pre-18. And I think, as, as I know there are probably a lot of writing teachers in here, I think these are great exercises for students is to get them to go back to those places and when, as, as opposed to like, I'm gonna write about my roommate. You know, like <laughs> students have this tendency to write about what's in front of them. And I think it's really good to push them to go back to those pre-18 obsessions and see what's actually there. I also am very struck that both of you most likely have had a lifetime habit of attentiveness, of being observant. You both write such richly sensuous descriptions of anything, a room, outside. How do you absorb, retain, and then articulate that? Uh, you want to answer first? Sure. I mean, for me, it's probably, it depends on what it is that I'm doing as a journalist. Mm -hmm. I um, am very conscious of gathering those details. And it's one of those things, when you're out doing interviews and you're out in the field doing research, it's really easy to forget to notice that stuff because you're trying to get everything everyone's saying and you want to ask questions. And so I have this habit of anytime I interview someone, I have throwaway questions that I ask. I don't care what the answer is or uh, it's just completely uninteresting to me. And I'll just throw them out. And those are my times when I just sort of push pause on everything. And then I look around the room and I go floor to ceiling, wall to wall, and I just document everything, you know, water stains, whatever. And then, oh, you know, sort of, wait, you know, you have to be careful. You're like listening and glancing at the ceiling. <laughs> um, and then I'll do the same thing with the person in front of me because, again, you can talk to someone for hours and leave the room and be like, were they wearing glasses? And you just don't retain that stuff. So I'll do that. I'll document someone head to toe and their mannerisms. And um, so I consciously look for that stuff a lot. And I actually think a lot of this came from growing up with my, my father's a fiction writer. And I didn't realize this at the time, but he, when, when I was a kid, we would play this game where when we, we would go out to dinner or something as characters in his books. So we would make reservations as the Housers, and we would go and we would have dinner as the Housers in a restaurant. And then we would, he was writing this novel that was about a, a hotel owner, and it was these kind of, so there were a lot of different characters who would come and go. And we would sit there and look around the restaurant and make up stories for people in the restaurants. and and sort of build them as characters. And I now realize that was my very busy father trying to figure out how to work and you know have a full-time job and kids and work on his writing. <laughs> so he was sort of working on his writing at dinner. But I think that taught me to look at you know people and things very in a scenic way, in a sort of character-developing way that I wouldn't have probably done otherwise. Jamie? Um, not too long after I met um, my husband, and we've been together more than 25 years, we were sitting in a cafe in Germany, and um, he dropped into my coffee 20 pieces of sugar without my noticing <laughs> a single one. I mean, I'm, I can be so oblivious. I only pay attention to certain things, but just, he just wanted to see how many he could put in before I would notice. And he put the entire jar into my, into my cup without my noticing, because I was looking at him. You know, I wasn't... Uh, thinking about, I can be, and this is to comfort those of you who, are, who think, oh my God, I'll never be able to write anything because I'm so oblivious. I'm more oblivious than you, just take my <laughs> word for it right now. But uh, on the other hand, um, I amuse myself, I often, if I find myself um, sitting in an audience just like this one, and I'm not as interested as I should be in, what, in the proceedings, um, I will be doing what Rebecca is is doing when she's asked people to speak so that she can take note of the room. 
I make many, you know, I just find it fascinating what that person is wearing, how they sit, what, uh, I mean, it's how I, how I keep myself entertained. And, um, and anytime I'm in a state of um, stretched emotion, which I certainly was all the time I was on the racetrack, I'm absorbing a whole lot um, on the sens sensory level without even knowing it. Smells, sounds, um, sensations, touch, uh, and so on. So, as I say, the, the racetrack part, uh, that part, that the atmosphere of that really took care of itself. Um, but, um, uh, but I think that um, being a good observer really all partly depends on being able to tune things out. Oddly mm -hmm. enough, and really concentrate on what you are looking at. Yeah. So let, I will ask one final question, and then you will sign books over there. And I just, this is a simple one. Um, can you, are you willing to share with us any future projects, things you're working on, a brief description, things to look forward to? Jamie? I'm working on something completely different. Um, my my um, editor from Random House, Tim O'Connell, is here, so I have to pretend I'm really working on this. Right <laughs> um, but he, Although he kind of suspects that I'm not working as hard on it as I, as I should be. <laughs> it's a novel about being married to this German guy for all these years. I'm Jewish and I've spent a lot of time in Germany where I'm always very anxious um, and uh, turned this into a plot for a novel that has both a historical and in some ways kind of a fantasy element. That is, the, this, this woman has found six Jews living in a cave since the war. They've stopped time because they knew what was going to happen. They're playing cards and meanwhile they're reviewing certain things in their lives. And uh, meanwhile she has forced her husband to research the history of his town, uh, which he's doing in a newspaper archive. But there he gets more involved in the sports scores during the war than in the uh, actual history of the town continue his usual pattern of inattention to anything else but sports. But somehow their researches converge. That's basically what's happening. Oh, excellent. Thank you. Yeah, and my, you mentioned in the intro that the, ki the kids' edition of my book came out in the fall, and it actually didn't. It's, oh. uh, so that's actually what I'm working on right now. Right, I heard couldn't that, find I'm like, it. oh, that's awesome. Somebody published it, so I don't have to finish it. <laughs> I wonder why I didn't actually see it anywhere. No, yeah, it was going to be. So I'm working with another writer to, to, to turn my book into a, a sort of young reader's edition for 10 to 15, 14-year-olds. Oh, okay. I'm also working on the film version, so I'm, I'm working with that HBO and Oprah and Alan Ball on the the actuals. I'm not writing the screenplay, but I'm a consultant on it, and so are members of the family, so we're all doing oh, that together. Terrific. And I have my next book project that I'm sort of starting to work on, and it goes back, you know, talking about these uh, pre-18-year-old obsessions, it goes back to this world of veterinary medicine and bioethics, and it sort of tackles in some ways some similar issues as this book, but very different. And that is all I can say about it, not because I'm being coy about it, but because I really, like, there's a there's a press release on my website that explains what it is, and even my friends, when they say, what's, your, what has, what's the next book, be like, go read it on my website, because that is much clearer than the, the hour-long babbling that I will do if I try to explain it right now, because it's just not kind of coherent enough in my head. So I'm working on cohering it. Well, good luck. That's wonderful to hear. And thank you so much, Jamie Gordon and Rebecca Stewart. Thank you for tuning in to the AWP podcast series. 
For other podcasts, please visit our website at www.awpwriter.org.